Hello everyone, this is Bonfire Madigan. We're not crazy, the system is. Tune into the Radical Mental Health Show hosted by the Freedom Center Wednesday nights, 6 to 7 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM. suicide rate is um, is going up, and um, there's actually been a really dramatic rise in domestic violence mm-hmm. that's happened there. And um, so we want to talk a little bit about mental health issues um, in New Orleans, um, and just uh, give you a little bit of a background when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about being overwhelmed. And there was an article in the New Yorker in February um, that um, laid out, I think, what the basic reality is of what's happening in New Orleans. In fact, the whole Gulf, Gulf Coast is at, you know, it's, it's basically disappearing. These are, this is a city that is on the way out. Um, the, um, uh, in 2001, um, the Scientific American did a report 
that said, you know, that Iran's was basically a disaster waiting to happen. That's because of, of two things. One, the absence of any kind of real um, planning or preparation. The Army Corps of Engineers was supposed to be preparing and building and um, strengthening the levees uh, system, the storm protection system. They completely failed to do that. Um, funding was cut and cut and cut. And then two, the other piece of the puzzle that you don't hear about um, often is that the way in which the wetlands of the whole area have been just so completely destroyed, by, primarily by economic exploitation, um, oil exploration, and uh, wetlands reclamation for development. And also, just to break in, it was really like I had the privilege of going to Jazz Fest because Jazz Fest occurred when we were down there, and I saw Bruce Springsteen and the PCR Orchestra's first gig. It was amazing. But a woman that I was sitting next to actually has become um, a really great supporter of my website, The Information Collective, and has submitted a lot of information about that because she's connected with um, various grassroots groups that are drawing attention to that issue. So if you check out The Information Collective, www.infocollective.org, there's some information posted about just that subject and the way that the oil company's drilling has eroded the wetland and how that contributed to the disaster that Hurricane Katrina wrought on the city. This is this is a disaster that was predicted repeatedly, repeatedly in mainstream sources. And um, when you destroy wetlands, you destroy the coast's natural ability to resist storm surges. Mm-hmm. And so it actually wasn't the hurricane winds or the rain uh, directly that led to the devastation, the flooding in New Orleans. What it was was the surge in the ocean. And that wasn't prevented by the wetlands protection because the wetlands have been decimated. So that's a conservative explanation. That's if you want to go into the whole living situation, you're going to begin a little bit more. We'll say more. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, and there was definitely destruction that, that was wrought by, you know, the winds and the storms. And the area where the Common Ground Clinic is located in Algiers in particular is on the west bank of the city and didn't experience any of the flooding that was associated with them, with the levees breaking. But but it did experience some wind damage, and there was some structural damage, but not nearly comparative to, you know, the city, the heart of the city. So you've got a situation where where people are, there's no, there's clearly no preparation happening, and everyone is predicting a major disaster is on the way, just because of the way in which the wetlands are being destroyed, and the way in which the natural protections are gone. And... Nothing is nothing is happening, and then Katrina hits, and now, as the article in New Yorker talks about, um, this is an ongoing process. Hurricane season happens every year. There has been no reconstruction. There has been no preparation for future hurricanes. So what we're talking about is multiple Katrinas. We're talking about a scenario of multiple Katrinas coming up. It's maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but down the line, and eventually. You know, in 100 years, there's not going to be a New Orleans. The coast is going to be dramatically changed by the conditions that we're talking about and the greenhouse effect, which is raising sea levels mm-hmm. around the world. Now, take that to a personal level. What does that do to you psychologically to think about, and we were just listening to Lead Belly, and we're talking about New Orleans, which is really one of the great American cities. It's really one of the greatest cities in the world. It's the cradle of a lot of African-American culture. It's, a, it's the cradle of um, some of the greatest artistic 
expressions that humanity has really come up with, jazz and blues, and that's disappearing, that's under threat. So think about the fact that um, people have been living there for generations and generations and generations. A lot of people in New Orleans had never actually left New Orleans. They've been in the city their whole lives. Generations owning houses and passing it on to the next generation, passing it on to the next generation. And then, um, so it, it creates a, a recipe for a pr- profound sense of denial. And there is no significant plan. There's been promises. There's been no um, allocation of adequate funding. There's nothing reassuring. So you have a city that's kind of really, you know, dazed and, and shocked and really in a kind of chronic, traumatized position. Now steps in the mental health system. And what is it that the mental health system says and what is it the mental health system has to offer for this situation? Well, I mean, just you granted, like, the, the environmental aspects kind of makes, you know, focusing on rebuilding New Orleans a lost cause because predictions are in 20 years it's going to be underwater anyway if, you know, our environmental condition continues to degrade or erode or whatever the word is. But, um, you know, you take a look at what actually happened in the city after the hurricane with the forced evacuations and the way that people were treated and the way people were literally rounded up like they were a concentration camp. Um, being directed into concentration camps. Like, it's, it's really startling just hearing the stories of how people were literally forced out of their houses, forced into lines, forced into, you know, these designated spots to be bus off to areas they didn't even know where. No information being given, just militant soldiers taking them out of their house and away from their lives and away from all their earthly possessions. And, you know, no, no explanation of what's happening, no explanation of the process. And, you know, those people that were actually directed out of the city and forced to evacuate were lucky <laughs> because there are also the people who were just left on top of their roofs. And, I mean, you, you take a look at that and, and just the utter failure of, of our emergency response systems to address the needs of people. And then you bring in the mental health system. <laughs> yeah, and then we're, we're laughing because the mental health system's kind of, of approach has been, you know, counseling and medication. And we're going we're gonna to sort of toss out diagnoses of post-traumatic stress disorder for people. And I don't think that there could ever be enough therapy and medication to deal with a situation like this. You know, and just to clarify, when we're talking about, you know, the future, the future of New Orleans as a physical location is, is really pretty written by the greenhouse effect and by the, the flooding that is, is coming. That's really not going to change. The future of New Orleans as a culture and as a, a place, as a cultural place, is really a political and economic decision that's being made on a large scale right now. What's happening is that um, public housing is being demolished in New Orleans before people are even given an opportunity to come back or supported to um, return to the public housing. A lot of the public housing was demolished, wasn't even damaged by the, um, by the hurricane. Um, there was recently was an approval to put a, a new casino, to develop a new casino in the city. So the direction that development is going is completely about gentrification. And when people, when you hear people talk about they want to stay and they want to return, then you have to think about it in terms of what is it people are holding on to. What they're holding on to is a culture and an identity. And 
say something about the research that you've been doing with folks there? Uh, well, when we were down there, um, I guess we should talk a little bit about the work that we actually did do, because there was a lot that we did. Um, and a lot of it was just chilling with people <laughs> and hanging out with the residents, and that was really cool. Uh, at least that's what I did. I mean, we were busy working at the clinic doing acupuncture. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, you know, we, we went there, and we were really committed to, to you know, learning about the community from the community and really not really crossing that boundary and really communicating with people and finding out what, what the needs of the community were and trying to use whatever skills or whatever 
resources we had to try to meet that. Um, so a lot of what we heard about were people, you know, who couldn't get to sleep. They hadn't slept in months. Yeah, sleeplessness is a really big one. And, um, of course, like if you go to a doctor and talk about sleeplessness, you get a sleeping pill. Also, the suicide rates skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just trauma in general. Just people are traumatized and they don't know how to deal with it. So one of the projects that we did is we came up with informational sheets on suicide prevention, on how to get to sleep, and on just some basics on trauma and different ways to deal with it. Yeah, emphasizing not, you know, go to the experts and get a service, but how do we develop our own skills to take to take care of each other? Because that's really the building the community capacity, and that was that was a concern I had. There's a group, acupuncturists without borders, that has done a lot of great work um, with the um, five-point year protocol, which is the same protocol that we use in the uh, in the Freedom Center clinic. Um, done thousands of treatments in Katrina for, um, for residents, for um, uh, first responders, police, um, fire people, all kinds of uh, people affected by um, the stress down there. Um, but it's not a sustainable strategy because you basically have got extreme amount of money going into plane fare and um, you know infrastructure to get out of state acupuncturists into the state, and then you know a lot of them these are professionals and it's kind of like an adventure vacation for people. They do a couple weeks at most. Some people just fly in for a weekend and do a bunch of acupuncture treatments and then fly out, which is great in a lot of ways. I absolutely am happy that that's happening, but wouldn't it be better to train people in New Orleans to do acupuncture themselves, especially since you've got a protocol that doesn't take a three-year training to do. It's kind of not a, your acupuncture is a 70-hour training, and so I was involved with some discussions with folks about that, about that and trying to get that rolling. Um, the acupuncturist without borders is not very receptive to that point of view. Unfortunately, and um, you know, it, may, it may take. I was talking with um, Dr. Michael Smith of the um, Lincoln Recovery about this issue, and he says that it comes up quite a bit that the professional three year acupuncturists don't see the importance of you know, training peer 70 hour community health workers to do these treatments. And it may take, it take another disaster before people realize look, we, can't, we just haven't had enough acupuncturists to go around in more of a long, long term ongoing development of community health capacity and that can't come from experts only. It has to come from training people in the community. So that was really the philosophy that we, we brought to our educational work down there because I mean that's basically the Freedom Center's mm-hmm. philosophy is that you know, health health comes from communities taking care of each other, not from setting up expensive bureaucratic Dependence, although of course there are you know, extreme situations where you, you need major hospitalization and you can't obviously you know, get it from people who don't have extremely sophisticated training, but that's actually really rare. But most of the most of the problems with mental health in New Orleans come down to like sleep. Basically, how do people get to sleep? And so, do you want to get people plugged into psychiatry, get them on medication, or do you want to just do some educational work about simple tools that people can can do to help them? I think those information sheets are on the webpage. Now. No, they're going to be, they're not actually up there yet. They're going to be, they're going to be up there, um, up there soon. So we're, um, if you're just tuning in, this is Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM. We are talking about mental health in the wake of Hurricane uh, Katrina. 
trainer. And um, you can give us a call at 585-1033. And I just want to say something a little bit about racism. Um, uh, you know, it's because it's kind of glaring and really permeates the situation down there. And when you, what you realize is that, um, you know, the um, New Orleans black community is really divided between poor African Americans and people with divided on class lines, obviously people who are part of the political structure of New Orleans, um, and people who are basically marginalized and disenfranchised by it. So really what you see is, is, is class. We're talking about race in the United States. Whiteness was set up to protect class interests, so they're really the same issue. And historically, um, the African-American community has been very, very reluctant to get mental health services. People don't go to psychiatrists. They don't go to counselors. They don't, there's no therapy culture in speaking generally and broadly, which is always a mistake to do. <laughs> Just in general, there's not a big therapy culture among African-Americans. And what we were trying to talk to folks about was that there's actually reasons for this. This is actually a positive thing in a lot of ways. It's really a community being self-protective for good reasons. And, you know, we would talk with folks about the fact that we were both psychiatric abuse survivors and the responsiveness was just, was always right there. People really, really knew what we were, what we were talking about because African-American and poor communities are affected much more than middle-class white communities around issues of, like, forced drugging and being beaten up in hospitals and, and you know, locked away in seclusion rooms and things. Am I supposed to pick it up? I'm just thinking about that. So it's just a, it's such an intense, um, it's such an intense uh, yeah. topic. You know, but it's, it's really real. It's interesting because if you look at some of the moves of SAMHSA now, they're really doing some serious outreach to the black community. And, and they're, they're using this natural disaster as an opportunity to market pharmaceutical drugs. It's a big marketing cynicism of, you know, seeing uh, like obstacles. Not, it's not called marketing opportunities. They're called obstacles to treatment. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so historically, the Latino and the, the African-American communities have had huge obstacles to treatment and they want to overcome them. And it's a very twisted and almost kind of makes pharmaceutical marketing seem anti-racist. It's a weird kind of like we're going to overcome the, the color gap in mental health care by providing more and without questioning like Centers. Are we going to help support the communities, the community churches? Is there money going to be going in to help people to meet together to make decisions and figure out what they want to do to have more community-controlled institutions? Are people going to get small business loans? Are they going to get funding so that they can, you know, clean out the mold in their houses? Are there going to be levies that can? Because if they wanted to, I mean, we could talk about a fraction of the budget for one war, the Iraq. Let's not even talk about the Iraq. Let's talk about the Afghan war. And forget about the Iraq war. Just a fraction of the budget of the Afghan war could rebuild the levees. I mean, military was, support to Israel. Yeah, it was, I mean, could protect people's housing investment. And then you develop a long-term strategy for how you're going to defend and protect this precious culture that's developed in New Orleans. And it, it may mean that you have to start building 
outside of the city. It may mean that you have to have some kind of very ambitious plan for moving people over 100 years, you know, over 50 years. I mean, we can, this country is the richest country on earth. There's nothing preventing us economically from responding to the situation in an ethical way that has integrity and that has absolutely not happened. So, what were some of the other things that we were going to talk about? Um, we, we also did a Skillshare at the yeah. LJ's clinic, which turned out to be a really great event. And unfortunately, it happened like three days before we left the city, <laughs> which is heartbreaking because there were so many people there who were so into, you know, the idea of coming together and, you know, really in the name of community empowerment and in the name of, you know, peers coming together and addressing their issues and helping each other. Um, we just did to basically talk at Freedom Center support group meeting, which is really positively receive yeah. uh, people. We didn't require people to be, you know, clean and sober for 30 days before showing up or anything like that. Yeah. And it was all about just people getting together and, and hearing, uh, hearing from each other. And um, I think, you know, setting the tone in the beginning with some of us talking about our personal stories really invited everybody to, um, to open up. Um, yeah, so that was, that was another thing that we did. Um, and then we Kind of, we were kind of loose cannons. We weren't necessarily uh, working through common ground, but we were definitely affiliated with them. We definitely went around and met up with um, a whole bunch of people who are common ground volunteers, and they have sites all over the city, and they're doing amazing work. They're, they're the most effective relief organization in that city, without a doubt. Everybody in that city knows of them and knows who they are, which, if you take a look at the money that's flowing into the city for the relief effort, it's, it's kind of astounding that, you know, a group of basically anarchist white kids <laughs> are running the most effective relief effort. Yeah, and and thousands, and thousands of volunteers and gone through and gutted and cleaned and boarded up mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of, of houses and basically just like running on a shoestring mm-hmm. budget. Um, and, you know, people talk about the Red Cross, and I, don't, I never saw the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Time, was the one time I saw a Red Cross tent was in a French quarter at some festival. Some festival was happening. Right? Yeah, yeah there and that's, that's another amazing thing, right? Yeah. Because New Orleans is just devastating. Like, that city is just in ruins. But somehow that one area of the city escaped um, damage from Hurricane Katrina, the French quarter. Well, historically, it was, the, it was settled earliest because it's the highest. The highest part, yeah. Yeah. But they've had the French quarter festival. They had yeah. jazz fest. They had Mardi Gras. You know, all of the festivities are still going on. People are having their annual conferences in New Orleans. So it's it's, it's about keeping, basically what they're doing is they're keeping the money-making machine alive because mm-hmm. that's what's important. And that's sort of like the central hub that the reconstruction is being built around. So you've got a casino that's being developed. You've got public housing being torn down. You've got people in some of the hardest hit areas of the city, basically, that are waiting them out. They're waiting for them to just basically give up. Um, And then they can just redevelop that land, and it'll be a massive little someone. So when we talked to ask them about gentrification, they said this isn't gentrification, this is Disneyfication. And uh, so there's a funny story that, you know, the politics there is just completely oh, that's strange. There's a, there was a, the mayor, um, the mayor race was happening while we were there. And there was a candidate, I wish I remember her name. But uh, do you remember about this? Yeah, and she sure actually had, she had a whole rebuild New Orleans thing on her website with a photo of the 
French Quarter, except that it's something she said it was the French Quarter. And then someone took a close look at it and they spotted a Disneyland trash can in the photo. And she actually was using a photo <laughs> from the fake French Quarter in Disneyland or Disney World. Yeah. And after she got busted, this is when she just photoshopped it to like erase the Disney World trash can. Yeah. That's, that's, that's I mean, that's iconic of the actual situation. Yeah, that's really pretty much. So it's like, wow, this really represents the big yeah. picture here. But I guess just to talk a little bit about the research I've been doing, yeah. I met up in um, the night work because I, I was really interested in the whole political aspect of what's going on with the reconstruction. And um, I had the privilege of going to the homeowners meeting that was run out of the ninth ward and the homeowners association meeting because there was a lot um, going on with the Bring New Orleans Back Commission. Uh, a lot of people working to oppose the plans that they are putting into action and have put into action. And, um, you know, it, it basically began. I went down there and met up with some people. I'm like, look, you know, I'm a researcher. I want to share my skills. What do you guys want to know about? And it was the utility companies that had refused to turn on power and water to the ninth ward that they wanted information on and also the Bring New Orleans Back Commission because while these policies were so severely affecting the people in the city, there was so little information about about it um, that they knew and had access to. So a lot of what I did was, was um, you know, take a look at the Bring New Orleans Back Commission action plan, deconstruct it, and give it to people. And, you know, just that simple thing was something that people were so unbelievably thankful for. It was really amazing. Um, it was really very welcome to action. Yeah. And um, we, should, we should say we talked a lot about common ground doing a lot of great work. But there's, a lot, there's a lot of problems, too. We basically got always had, like, a huge influx of young college-aged kids, crusty mm-hmm. um, punk anarchists and radicals from all over the country. And a lot of them just didn't have a clue how to do cross-class can I just say something that would just make it so funny, and this is not yeah. exactly related, but the Bring New Orleans Back Commission is exercising one of the most disgusting displays of institutional racism that there is. They're basically gentrifying the city and driving out black residents from their mainstays. The co-chair of that is one of the core trainers of the People's Institute. So I just, I was just blown away by that. That somebody who was involved with the People's Institute, who does all these undoing racism workshops, who was one of the core trainers could be involved in that and could support what's going on with the Big Norris Back Commission. It's just very telling to me. Yeah, politics are really complicated there. I think Common Ground is really struggling with that issue. I mean, Algiers Clinic um, you know, isn't community control at this point. It's outsider control. And so there's a priority to get it to be community control. But what's happening is, that, you know, the there isn't as much development on immediate local community controls. They're more mm-hmm. talking about getting folks from Tulane University and the local professional medical mm-hmm. community, which is important. I mean, it's, it's great to have you know, a real functioning medical clinic in that poor community. And at the same time, it's not quite the same as having you know local community, really local community control mm-hmm. of the clinic. And um, yeah, there's like there were just a lot of different politics but a lot between different groups and a lot of suspicion and people very people really nervous on edge. People have been down there for months. People you know you, you meet people who are volunteering and just like they've done their thousand yard stare and they're they're wooden, they've gotten startled response to just major trauma going on. And then everyone in the bar 
stories about, you know, just really intense stories. I mean, one of the things that we did just a few days after we, we got there was we were going through the wreckage, you know, below an I-4 with uh, um, a man who was very upset that his, his wife's body had been found. And there were bodies that were still being found down there eight, nine months after Katrina. Think about that for a second. Bodies are still being found. They haven't been searching. They had nine months to search, and they still haven't searched the entire city. And there's still bodies being found. Like, that's an incredible affront to the survivors and to the family members of people who have, have died. And, you know, the, the extensive poverty um, and the extensive damage that, that, was, that happened, not just in New Orleans, but in the whole Gulf Coast area, especially Mississippi, more than Louisiana, we'll never know how many people died. And those people, there are bodies that just washed to see their bodies buried in the bayou. There are entire villages, communities that weren't on the electrical grid, that didn't have, you know, public utility services, and they're, they're just wiped out. And the question is, why wasn't there an effort to really find out and explore it? And the answer is, well, I can't go economic. Exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting if you read the news reports um, right when Hurricane Katrina was happening, and they were projecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead. And the amount of people that are dead from Hurricane Katrina is really a description of the failure of the political system to protect the people in that city and the failure of the emergency response system to protect the people of the city. So it is it is really a very political issue, the, the number, the body count number. Yeah. And, um, well, they just stopped looking at some point and they stopped counting. Well, it's actually really interesting because the company that FEMA outsourced the body count to is called Canyon International, and it's a subsidy of... Um, what is it, Service Corporation? I forget the name of the company that it's a subsidy to, but that company is a Texas-based company, and it is infamous for illegal desecration of bodies and, you know, skewing the body count, and and those those were the people that, that were in charge of the body count, and that's where the official body count number came from, so. Yeah, so if you remember, I mean, I often when this disaster happens, one of the first things you go ask is, well, how many people die? And you remember the news network, there were reports. There, was, there were no numbers. There weren't numbers coming out of New Orleans because there wasn't the political will to, uh, to find out. Yeah, and I think the official number that the Department of Health and Hospitals released was like 1,295. But again, that's the number that's coming directly from Kenyan International. And if you remember, the press was not allowed to accompany people on body rescue efforts. So there was no media oversight of what was happening or the number of bodies that were... Um, I think one of the meetings they were worried about was the more people died in Katrina than died in the World Trade Center. That's one of the things that they were worried about was going to hit the public consciousness. And that's really kind of what happened is that this has been a real um, you know, fiasco for Bush's popularity. I mean, this is, Katrina was really the turning point for Bush's popularity ratings. They've gone up just a little bit recently with um, the so-called anti-terror measures and revelations and prosecutions that have happened uh, recently. But Bush's popularity rating really has taken those dive. Uh, Bush's popularity rating is quite so accurate. But right. that's, <laughs> another, that's another question. What exactly does that mean? But politically, that's a figure that they look at. And I think that, the, that there's an effort, just consistently been an effort to minimize the true body count mm-hmm. of Katrina because they didn't want there to be a comparison 
mean, if people have said this is the black nine one one, I mean, this is this is really a catastrophic um, event with a huge deep politics behind the scenes thing going on. We should talk about the Lendies a little bit because this is. I mean, we're talking about mental health and paranoia and conspiracy theories. Um, one thing that people should know is in 1927, the Great Mississippi floods. They did blow up the levees. Read any history of the Mississippi flood in 27, and yeah, they blew up. They blew up the levees. They were trying to protect. They were trying to mitigate the damage from the floodwaters by letting the water go go in one direction and not in another. It made no sense from an uh, environmental mitigation standpoint to achieve anything. But they, they blew them up. So you get a situation where in 65 was Hurricane Bessie. Where you know the levees broke in '65, and a lot of people said they blew these levees up, and there's never been any evidence of that that's, that I've come across. But you have a um, you have a culture that has seen it happen before, that is experiencing generations of racist neglect and in a slavery-based society with a political and economic power structure that doesn't care about poor Africans. Yeah. Historically, New Orleans was one of the most important slave hubs in the country. Mm-hmm. That's where all the plantation owners went to pick out the very finest slaves from all the different tribes. Yeah, so it's a very politicized and very economically important. It's also very militarily important. The mm-hmm. ports, the Gulf Coast ports, and the oil flow that comes through there. Mm-hmm. So you've got people who are basically like, wow, we think that there's the levees were blown up in 65. And then Katrina happens, and people are saying, wow, we think that the levees were blown up. Here, and one of the things that one person said to me was, "Well, it's it's there's it, it's either um, it's one of two things. It's a 50-50 theory. Either they blew up the levees, or they didn't fix them for the last time they blew them up. You know, and I think that's really sort of sums it up because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter whether there's a smoking gun. It might as well have been that they blew up the cities because the the, the the bomb was set. I mean, there was a natural." Disaster that was waiting to happen because of the lack of money going in to prepare and the environmental destruction that the um, oil industry and the economic development had done over the years. It was a bomb waiting to blow, and then it blew up. And they knew what the effects of the bomb were going to be. Well, it's going to decimate poor African Americans, going to help us gentrify the city. We can get an excuse to destroy public housing. We can redevelop. And so they let the, they let the bomb go. So that's, I mean, that's essentially my sense of what has gone on. And I think it's, it's really important to look at the way that this situation is being manipulated by politicians now and the way that the emergency response is being, um, I don't know, I'm not, I can't, I don't know the words, but the way that emergency response is being looked at now, if you take a look at the um, policy report that was released, Katrina Lessons Learned from the White House, and you take a look at the emergency response now, well, they're, they're basically instituting martial law in the name of protecting people from having another disaster like Hurricane Katrina take place. It's really astounding. And actually, just recent events that happened, the Department of Homeland Security merged with FEMA, so there's no longer a FEMA. It's some unified body, and it's really a way of consolidating. uh, They never admit guilt, but they do change their names, don't they? It seems to me. Well, I mean, they they change the name or something. They won't really... Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really astounding. the response plan that they now have in place. And if you take that and you match it up with information about, you know, detention centers that they're building for immigrants and all this other stuff, it's 
Thank you. 